Section 10 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 5, Part 2. 11 the third class of objections is not unlike the other two for they produce passages in which god upbraids his people for their ingratitude intimating that it was not his fault that they did not obtain all kinds of favour from his indulgence of such passages the following are examples the amalekites and the canaanites are before you and ye shall fall by the sword because ye are turned away from the lord therefore the lord will not be with you numbers chapter fourteen verse forty three because ye have done all these works saith the lord and i spake unto you rising up early and speaking but ye heard not and i called you but ye answered not therefore will i do unto this house which is called by my name wherein ye trust and unto the place which i gave to you and to your fathers as i have done to shiloh jeremiah chapter seven verses thirteen and fourteen they obeyed not thy voice neither walked in thy law they have done nothing of all that thou commandedst them to do therefore thou hast caused all this evil to come upon them jeremiah chapter thirty two verse twenty three how they ask can such upbraiding be directed against those who have it in their power immediately to reply prosperity was dear to us we feared adversity that we did not in order to obtain the one and avoid the other obey the lord and listen to his voice is owing to its not being free for us to do so in consequence of our subjection to the dominion of sin in vain therefore are we upbraided with evils which it was not in our power to escape but to say nothing of the pretext of necessity which is but a feeble and flimsy defence of their conduct can they i ask deny their guilt if they are held convicted of any fault the lord is not unjust in upbraiding them for having by their own perverseness deprived themselves of the advantages of his kindness let them say then whether they can deny that their own will is the depraved cause of their rebellion if they find within themselves a fountain of wickedness why do they stand declaiming about extraneous causes with a view of making it appear that they are not the authors of their own destruction if it be true that it is not for another's faults that sinners are both deprived of the divine favour and visited with punishment there is good reason why they should hear these rebukes from the mouth of god if they obstinately persist in their vices let them learn in their calamities to accuse and detest their own wickedness instead of charging god with cruelty and injustice if they have not manifested docility let them under a feeling of disgust at the sins which they see to be the cause of their misery and ruin return to the right path and with serious contrition confess the very thing of which the lord by his rebuke reminds them of what use those upbraidings of the prophets above quoted are to believers appears from the solemn prayer of daniel as given in his ninth chapter 
of their use in regard to the ungodly we see an example in the jews to whom jeremiah was ordered to explain the cause of their miseries though the event could not be otherwise than the lord had foretold therefore thou shalt speak these words unto them but they will not hearken unto thee thou shalt also call unto them but they will not answer thee jeremiah chapter seven verse twenty seven of what use then was he to talk to the deaf it was that even against their will they might understand that what they heard was true and that it was impious blasphemy to transfer the blame of their wickedness to god when it resided in themselves these few explanations will make it very easy for the reader to disentangle himself from the immense heap of passages containing both precepts and reprimands which the enemies of divine grace are in the habit of piling up that they may thereon erect their statue of free will the psalmist upbraids the jews as a stubborn and rebellious generation a generation that set not their heart aright sam chapter seventy eight verse eight and in another passage he exhorts the men of his time harden not your heart sam chapter ninety five verse eight this implies that the whole blame of the rebellion lies in human depravity but it is foolish thence to infer that the heart the preparation of which is from the lord may be equally bent in either direction the psalmist says i have inclined my heart to perform thy statutes always psalms chapter one hundred nineteen verse one hundred twelve meaning that with willing and cheerful readiness of mind he had devoted himself to god he does not boast however that he was the author of that disposition for in the same psalm he acknowledges it to be the gift of god we must therefore attend to the admonition of paul when he thus addresses believers work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is god which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure philippians chapter two verses twelve and thirteen he ascribes to them a part in acting that they may not indulge in carnal sloth but by enjoining fear and trembling he humbles them so as to keep them in remembrance that the very thing which they are ordered to do is the proper work of god distinctly intimating that believers act if i may so speak passively inasmuch as the power is given them from heaven and cannot in any way be arrogated to themselves accordingly when peter exhorts us to add to faith virtue second peter chapter one verse five he does not concede to us the possession of a second place as if we could do anything separately he only arouses the sluggishness of our flesh by which faith itself is frequently stifled to the same effect are the words of paul he says quench not the spirit first thessalonians chapter five verse nineteen because the spirit of sloth if not guarded against is ever and anon creeping in upon believers but should any thence infer that it is entirely in their own power to foster the offered light his ignorance will easily be refuted by the fact that the very diligence which paul enjoins is derived only from god second corinthians chapter seven verse one 
we are often commanded to purge ourselves of all impurity though the spirit claims this as his peculiar office in fine that what properly belongs to god is transferred to us only by way of concession is plain from the words of john he that is begotten of god keepeth himself first john chapter five verse eighteen the advocates of free will fasten upon the expression as if it implied that we are kept partly by the power of god partly by our own whereas the very keeping of which the apostle speaks is itself from heaven hence christ prays his father to keep us from evil john chapter seventeen verse fifteen and we know that believers in their warfare against satan owe their victory to the armor of god accordingly peter after saying ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth immediately adds by way of correction through the spirit first peter chapter one verse twenty two in fine the nothingness of human strength in the spiritual contest is briefly shown by john when he says that whosoever is born of god does not commit sin for his seed remaineth in him first john chapter three verse nine he elsewhere gives the reasons this is the victory that overcometh the world even our faith first john chapter five verse four twelve but the passage is produced from the law of moses which seems very adverse to the view now given after promulgating the law he takes the people to witness in these terms this commandment which i command thee this day it is not hidden from thee neither is it far off it is not in heaven that thou shouldest say who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it but the word is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it deuteronomy chapter thirty verses eleven twelve and fourteen certainly if this is to be understood of mere precepts i admit that it is of no little importance to the matter in hand for though it were easy to evade the difficulty by saying that the thing here treated of is not the observance of the law but the facility and readiness of becoming acquainted with it some scruple perhaps would still remain the apostle paul however no mean interpreter removes all doubt when he affirms that moses here spoke of the doctrine of the gospel romans chapter ten verse eight if any one is so refractory as to contend that paul violently wrested the words in applying them to the gospel though his hardihood is chargeable with impiety we are still able independently of the authority of the apostle to repel the objection for if moses spoke of precepts merely he was only inflating the people with vain confidence had they attempted the observance of the law in their own strength as a matter in which they should find no difficulty what else could have been the result than to throw them headlong where then was that easy means of observing the law when the only access to it was over a fatal precipice accordingly nothing is more certain than that under these words is comprehended the covenant of mercy which had been promulgated along with the demands of the law a few verses before he had said the lord thy god will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed 
to love the lord thy god with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live deuteronomy chapter thirty verse six therefore the readiness of which he immediately after speaks was placed not in the power of man but in the protection and help of the holy spirit who mightily performs his own work in our weakness the passage however is not to be understood of precepts simply but rather of the gospel promises which so far from proving any power in us to fulfil righteousness utterly disprove it this is confirmed by the testimony of paul when he observes that the gospel holds forth salvation to us not under the harsh arduous and impossible terms on which the law treats with us namely that those shall obtain it who fulfil all its demands but on terms easy expeditious and readily obtained this passage therefore tends in no degree to establish the freedom of the human will thirteen they are wont also to adduce certain passages in which god is said occasionally to try men by withdrawing the assistance of his grace and to wait until they turn to him as in hosea i will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offence and seek my face hosea chapter five verse fifteen it were absurd say they that the lord should wait till israel should seek his face if their minds were not flexible so as to turn in either direction of their own accord as if anything were more common in the prophetical writings than for god to put on the semblance of rejecting and casting off his people until they reform their lives but what can our opponents extract from such threats if they mean to maintain that the people when abandoned by god are able of themselves to think of turning unto him they will do it in the very face of scripture on the other hand if they admit that divine grace is necessary to conversion why do they dispute with us but while they admit that grace is so far necessary they insist on reserving some ability for man how do they prove it certainly not from this nor any similar passage for it is one thing to withdraw from man and look to what he will do when thus abandoned and left to himself and another thing to assist his powers whatever they may be in proportion to their weakness what then it will be asked is meant by such expressions i answer just the same as if god were to say since nothing is gained by admonishing exhorting rebuking these stubborn people i will withdraw for a little and silently leave them to be afflicted i shall see whether after long calamity any remembrance of me will return and induce them to seek my face but by the departure of the lord to a distance is meant the withdrawal of prophecy by his waiting to see what men will do is meant that he while silent and in a manner hiding himself tries them for a season with various afflictions both he does that he may humble us the more for we shall sooner be broken than corrected by the strokes of adversity unless his spirit train us to docility moreover when the lord offended and as it were fatigued with our obstinate perverseness leaves us for a while by withdrawing his word in which he is wont in some degree to manifest his presence and makes trial of what we will do in his absence from this it is erroneously inferred that there is some power of free will the extent of which is to be considered and tried whereas the only end which he has in view is to bring us to an acknowledgment of our utter nothingness 
fourteen another objection is founded on a mode of speaking which is constantly observed both in scripture and in common discourse god works are said to be ours and we are said to do what is holy and acceptable to god just as we are said to commit sin but if sins are justly imputed to us as proceeding from ourselves for the same reason say they some share must certainly be attributed to us in works of righteousness it could not be accordant with reason to say that we do those things which we are incapable of doing of our own motion god moving us as if we were stones these expressions therefore it is said indicate that while in the matter of grace we give the first place to god a secondary place must be assigned to our agency if the only thing here insisted on were that good works are termed ours i in my turn would reply that the bread which we ask god to give us is also termed ours what then can be inferred from the title of possession but simply that by the kindness and free gift of gods that becomes ours which in other respects is by no means due to us therefore let them either ridicule the same absurdity in the lord's prayer or let them cease to regard it as absurd that good works should be called ours though our only property in them is derived from the liberality of god but there is something stronger in the fact that we are often said in scripture to worship god do justice obey the law and follow good works these being proper offices of the mind and will how can they be consistently referred to the spirit and at the same time attributed to us unless there be some concurrence on our part with the divine agency this difficulty will be easily disposed of if we attend to the manner in which the holy spirit acts in the righteous the similitude with which they invidiously assail us is foreign to the purpose for who is so absurd as to imagine that movement in man differs in nothing from the impulse given to a stone nor can anything of the kind be inferred from our doctrine to the natural powers of man we ascribe approving and rejecting willing and not willing striving and resisting namely approving vanity rejecting solid good willing evil and not willing good striving for wickedness and resisting righteousness what then does the lord do if he sees meet to employ depravity of this description as an instrument of his anger he gives it whatever aim and direction he pleases that by a guilty hand he may accomplish his own good work a wicked man thus serving the power of god while he is bent only on following his own lust can we compare to a stone which driven by an external impulse is borne along without motion or sense or will of its own we see how wide the difference is but how stands the case with the godly as to whom chiefly the question is raised when god erects his kingdom in them he by means of his spirit curbs their will that it may not follow its natural bent and be carried hither and thither by vagrant lusts bends frames trains and guides it according to the rule of his justice so as to incline it to righteousness and holiness and establishes and strengthens it by the energy of his spirit that it may not stumble or fall for which reason augustine thus expresses himself it will be said we are therefore acted upon and do not act nay 
you act and are acted upon and you then act well when you are acted upon by one that is good the spirit of god who actuates you is your helper in acting and bears the name of helper because you too do something in the former member of this sentence he reminds us that the agency of man is not destroyed by the motion of the holy spirit because nature furnishes the will which is guided so as to aspire to good as to the second member of the sentence in which he says that the very idea of help implies that we also do something we must not understand it as if he were attributing to us some independent power of action but not to foster a feeling of sloth he reconciles the agency of god with their own agency by saying that to wish is from nature to wish well is from grace accordingly he had said a little before did not god assist us we should not only not be able to conquer but not able even to fight fifteen hence it appears that the grace of god as this name is used when regeneration is spoken of is the rule of the spirit in directing and governing the human will govern he cannot without correcting reforming renovating hence we say that the beginning of regeneration consists in the abolition of what is ours in like manner he cannot govern without moving impelling urging and restraining accordingly all the actions which are afterwards done are truly said to be wholly his meanwhile we deny not the truth of augustine's doctrine that the will is not destroyed but rather repaired by grace the two things being perfectly consistent namely that the human will may be said to be renewed when its pitiosity and perverseness being corrected it is conformed to the true standard of righteousness and that at the same time the will may be said to be made new being so vitiated and corrupted that its nature must be entirely changed there is nothing then to prevent us from saying that our will does what the spirit does in us although the will contributes nothing of itself apart from grace we must therefore remember that we quoted from augustine that some men labor in vain to find in the human will some good quality properly belonging to it any intermixture which men attempt to make by conjoining the effort of their own will with divine grace is corruption just as when unwholesome and muddy water is used to dilute wine but though everything good in the will is entirely derived from the influence of the spirit yet because we have naturally an innate power of willing we are not improperly said to do the things of which god claims for himself all the praise first because everything which his kindness produces in us is our own only we must understand that it is not of ourselves and secondly because it is our mind our will our study which are guided by him to what is good sixteen the other passages which they gather together from different quarters will not give much trouble to any person of tolerable understanding who pays due attention to the explanations already given they adduce the passage of genesis unto thee shall be his desire and thou shalt rule over him genesis chapter four verse seven 
this they interpret of sin as if the lord were promising cain that the dominion of sin should not prevail over his mind if he would labor in subduing it we however maintain that it is much more agreeable to the context to understand the words as referring to abel it being there the purpose of god to point out the injustice of the envy which cain had conceived against his brother and this he does in two ways by showing first that it was vain to think he could by means of wickedness surpass his brother in the favour of god by whom nothing is esteemed but righteousness and secondly how ungrateful he was for the kindness he had already received in not being able to bear with the brother who had been subjected to his authority but lest it should be thought that we embrace this interpretation because the other is contrary to our view let us grant that god does here speak of sin if so his words contain either an order or a promise if an order we have already demonstrated that this is no proof of man's ability if a promise where is the fulfilment of the promise when cain yielded to the sin over which he ought to have prevailed they will allege a tacit condition in the promise as if it were said that he would gain the victory if he contended this subterfuge is altogether unavailing for if the dominion spoken of refers to sin no man can have any doubt that the form of expression is imperative declaring not what we are able but what it is our duty to do even if beyond our ability although both the nature of the case and the rule of grammatical construction require that it be regarded as a comparison between cain and abel we think the only preference given to the younger brother was that the elder made himself inferior by his own wickedness seventeen they appeal moreover to the testimony of the apostle paul because he says it is not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth but of god that showeth mercy romans chapter nine verse fifteen from this they infer that there is something in will and endeavour which though weak in themselves still being mercifully aided by god are not without some measure of success but if they would attend in sober earnest to the subject there handled by paul they would not so rashly pervert his meaning i am aware they can quote origin and jerome in support of this exposition to this i might in my turn oppose augustine but it is of no consequence what they thought if it is clear what paul meant he teaches that salvation is prepared for those only on whom the lord is pleased to bestow his mercy that ruin and death await all whom he has not chosen he had proved the condition of the reprobate by the example of pharaoh and confirmed the certainty of gratuitous election by the passage in moses i will have mercy on whom i will have mercy thereafter he concludes that it is not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth but of god that showeth mercy if these words are understood to mean that the will or endeavour are not sufficient because unequal to such a task the apostle has not used them very appropriately we must therefore abandon this absurd mode of arguing it is not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth therefore there is some will some running paul's meaning is more simple there is no will nor running 
by which we can prepare the way for our salvation it is wholly of the divine mercy he indeed says nothing more than he says to titus when he writes after that the kindness and love of god our saviour toward man appeared not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to his mercy he saved us titus chapter three verses four and five those who argue that paul insinuated there was some will and some running when he said it is not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth would not allow me to argue after the same fashion that we have done some righteous works because paul says that we have attained the divine favour not by works of righteousness which we have done but if they see a flaw in this mode of arguing let them open their eyes and they will see that their own mode is not free from a similar fallacy the argument which augustine uses is well founded if it is said it is not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth because neither will nor running are sufficient it may on the other hand be retorted it is not of god that showeth mercy because mercy does not act alone this second proposition being absurd augustine justly concludes the meaning of the words to be that there is no good will in man until it is prepared by the lord not that we ought not to will and run but that both are produced in us by god some with equal unskilfulness rest the saying of paul we are laborers together with god first corinthians chapter three verse nine there cannot be a doubt that these words apply to ministers only who are called laborers with god not from bringing anything of their own but because god makes use of their instrumentality after he has rendered them fit and provided them with the necessary endowments eighteen they appeal also to ecclesiasticus who is well known to be a writer of doubtful authority but though he might justly decline his testimony let us see what he says in support of free will his words are he himself made man from the beginning and left him in the hand of his counsel if thou wilt to keep the commandments and perform acceptable faithfulness he has set fire and water before thee stretch forth thy hand unto whether thou wilt before man is life and death and whether him liketh shall be given him ecclesiasticus chapter fifteen verses fourteen to seventeen grant that man received at his creation a power of acquiring life or death what then if we on the other hand can reply that he has lost it assuredly i have no intention to contradict solomon who asserts that god has made man upright that they have sought out many inventions ecclesiastes chapter seven verse twenty nine but since man by degenerating has made shipwreck of himself and all his blessings it certainly does not follow that everything attributed to his nature as originally constituted applies to it now when vitiated and degenerate therefore not only to my opponents but to the author of ecclesiasticus himself whoever he may have been this is my answer if you mean to tell man that in himself there is a power of acquiring salvation your authority with us is not so great as in the least degree to prejudice the undoubted word of god but if only wishing to curb the malignity of the fleshy 
which by transferring the blame of its own wickedness to god is wont to catch at a vain defence you say that rectitude was given to man in order to make it apparent he was the cause of his own destruction i willingly assent only agree with me in this that it is by his own fault he is stripped of the ornaments in which the lord at first attired him and then let us unite in acknowledging that what he now wants is a physician and not a defender nineteen there is nothing more frequent in their mouths than the parable of the traveller who fell among thieves and was left half dead luke chapter ten verse thirty two i am aware that it is a common idea with almost all writers that under the figure of the traveller is represented the calamity of the human race hence our opponents argue that man was not so mutilated by the robbery of sin and the devil as not to preserve some remains of his former endowments because it is said he was left half dead for where is the half living unless some portion of right will and reason remain first were i to deny that there is any room for their allegory what could they say there can be no doubt that the fathers invented it contrary to the genuine sense of the parable allegories ought to be carried no further than scripture expressly sanctions so far are they from forming a sufficient basis to found doctrines upon and were i so disposed i might easily find the means of tearing up this fiction by the roots the word of god leaves no half-life to man but teaches that in regard to life and happiness he has utterly perished paul when he speaks of our redemption says not that the half-dead are cured ephesians chapter two verses five and six and chapter five verse fourteen but that those who were dead are raised up he does not call upon the half-dead to receive the illumination of christ but upon those who are asleep and buried in the same way our lord himself says the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the son of god john chapter five verse twenty five how can they presume to set up a flimsy allegory in opposition to so many clear statements but be it that this allegory is good evidence what can they extort out of it man is half dead therefore there is some soundness in him true he has a mind capable of understanding though incapable of attaining to heavenly and spiritual wisdom he has some discernment of what is honourable he has some sense of the divinity though he cannot reach the true knowledge of god but to what do these amount they certainly do not refute the doctrine of augustine a doctrine confirmed by the common suffrages even of the schoolmen that after the fall the free gifts on which salvation depends were withdrawn and natural gifts corrupted and defiled let it stand therefore as an indubitable truth which no engines can shake that the mind of man is so entirely alienated from the righteousness of god that he cannot conceive desire or design anything but what is wicked distorted foul impure and iniquitous that his heart is so thoroughly envenomed by sin that it can breathe out nothing but corruption and rottenness that if some men occasionally make a show of goodness their mind is ever interwoven with hypocrisy and deceit their soul inwardly bound with the fetters of wickedness End of section ten. Recording by Shanna Sayre.
fresno california